On Sunday, Boris Johnson will set out a plan for how we exit lockdown. In preparation, a little unit inside the Foreign Office has been looking at examples from across Europe of what works and what doesn't. So what might our new normal look like? I've seen masks that people have made with the colours of their football clubs. One woman on the train wearing half a nappy that she'd sort of strung over her face. Germany has been out of lockdown for a fortnight already. It's been held up as an example of a country that's coped well with the virus. But how are they coping with freedom? They've done a very good job of coordinating it, but it's all starting to fall apart a bit as the sort of peloton of lockdowns breaks up and lots of states are now making individual dashes for freedom. What can the UK learn from Germany? And what will Europe look like when this is all over? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Europe, life after lockdown. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just after the lockdown was announced... We had a bit of an alarming moment where my wife and our baby both developed high fevers and um, respiratory symptoms. Oliver Moody is the Times Berlin correspondent. One of our neighbours, who's a midwife, had actually seen quite a few coronavirus cases that said, oh, it's, it's, it's coronavirus. And, and so, as you can imagine, we were at a bit of a loss and, and pretty worried. So we thought, well, why don't we try and get tested? It's at that point that you come up against this quite frightening sense of overload. So there's a hotline for the whole city of Berlin that was so overwhelmed that when you rang it, it didn't even connect. It just said, I'm sorry, there's there's nothing we can do. Then there's the German equivalent of NHS 111. Again, it took us something like 40 phone calls and eventually we got through to an answering machine. And in the end, I had to call up my son's paediatrician. That took sort of three hours of solid phone calls. She sort of talked us through the symptoms and decided that because he was a bit snuffly, it didn't sound like it was coronavirus. And then she was brave enough to let me bring him in to get him looked at. Luckily, it turned out to be um, bronchitis. So so we're out of the woods. It does definitely cast Germany's testing programme in a different light, because for all that it's been very proverbially efficient, It's amazingly hard, or has been amazingly hard in the past, to get tested unless you belong to a certain set of categories, including people who've been in touch with somebody who who has had the disease or people who've been to sort of dangerous areas. It was really quite surprising to me 
that a country with a reputation for being as sort of cast iron on testing as Germany was still a very difficult place to get tested in if you thought you had the coronavirus. Talk us through the German experience of coronavirus, because it is often held up as an example of a country that's managed to handle it quite well. The virus first arrived in Germany at the end of January, when a guy who worked for a car parts manufacturer in Bavaria that had a direct business link to Wuhan in China came home and and felt ill And very quickly, the authorities tested the people around him and there was was a small cluster of cases. At the time, it didn't really register. I mean, it was news, but there was no sense of sort of national threat. And then it took several weeks until there was a carnival in the west of the country, several hundred miles away, in a place called Gangelt where dozens and dozens of people who had attended this one Shrove Monday parade suddenly got sick and then the first deaths happened and with alarming speed, everything started to kind of gather momentum. How did the German authorities react to that? The German system is extremely decentralised. So what we saw initially was the initiative being seized by the municipality, the local council, sort of on the third tier of government, who immediately moved to shut off the schools, to close public buildings and to kind of impose a mini lockdown. Then it was a good three weeks before the country as a whole followed suit. So it was just seen as a local problem rather than a national one? The sense that this would be an impending reality that would change everybody's lives was really not there. It took another few weeks for that to really kick in. One of the particular aspects of Germany is that the authority to impose lockdowns is not in the hands of Angela Merkel and the federal government. It's in the hands of the state governments. And so up to now, they've done a very good job of coordinating it, but it's all starting to fall apart a bit as the sort of peloton of lockdowns breaks up and lots of states are now making individual dashes for freedom. But from afar, it seemed like nationally they've dealt with it quite efficiently, dare I say it. What did lockdown in Germany look like? Right, so the first thing to say is that Germany was actually relatively late into lockdown. It sort of introduced most of its measures between the 16th and the 22nd of March, really about a week after its European neighbours. The lockdown itself, I would say, has been on the gentler end of the spectrum by European standards. It resembles... Britons in quite a lot of respects, which is no accident because I think the British authorities are paying a lot of attention to what was going on in Germany. So we've been banned from meeting in gatherings of more than two people from different households. Most non-essential shops have been closed. But at the same time, there's been a a degree of freedom qualitatively here that that I don't recognise in in accounts from the UK. For example, you've been able to go out and sit in the park or sit on a bench and read a novel on your own. And have bookshops been open? In Berlin, they were open throughout the lockdown because the authorities deemed them to be a sort of essential for the nation's mental health. Tell me about how they're going about releasing lockdown. I would um, separate this into two chapters. The first one began just over two weeks ago when Angela Merkel basically called all of the leaders of the 16 states into one virtual room 
and bash their heads together until they came up with a sort of consensus about the things they were going to do, which was basically letting some age groups back into school and opening about 80% of the country's shops. And that consensus is held remarkably well up to now, given the tensions between the different states and their political philosophies. That has really fallen to pieces and, and, and fragmented as um, some of the states have just taken the initiative and, and gone out on a limb. And so we're seeing this kind of great flowering of experimentation, which is probably wonderful from a British perspective, because you get all this data on how the different easing measures affect the infection rates. But from a German perspective, it, it all looks like a bit of a mess. And how different are the different states? How, how, how differently are they doing it? Really spectacularly differently. So, for example, Saxony-Anhalt, which is in the middle, and the Saarland, which is a tiny state jammed up against the French border in the west, have scrapped the ban on gatherings of more than two people, and they've, they've brought it up to five. Lower Saxony and Mecklenburg-West Pomerania, they're desperately worried about the lockdown on their tourism industries. So they're bringing back restaurants and beer gardens and hotels and bed and breakfasts. And other states are still kind of being extremely cautious and sort of taking this at a very gradual pace. So in a few weeks' time, we'll be able to see which is working, which isn't. From an external perspective, it's what a scientist would call a natural experiment, where you have all of these areas that are in most respects quite comparable to each other, but are doing quite radically different things. And hopefully we'll start to see what each individual measure does in terms of the spread of the outbreak. The thing in Germany, what had kind of given it a significant advantage was an extremely well-managed contact tracing system that meant it could be very geographically specific about how it dealt with individual outbreaks. Um, And that probably bought it quite a lot of time. And we're still seeing even now that the death rate in relation to the population has still been remarkably low. The way that the health system has just been fundamentally differently set up for a very long time And it's possible to sort of overlook these differences in the ordinary course of things. But when a crisis hits, you realise, gosh, we have so many hospital beds here. And there is so much freedom within the individual states to set things up according to how they need things set up. They've had enormous numbers of private medical and public medical testing laboratories. And all of this spare capacity has suddenly kind of kicked into action. And that's been really a sort of particularly German phenomenon, I think. Contact tracing was one of the successes in Germany. It's something we're looking at here at the moment. How has it worked? Fascinatingly, it's an incredibly cumbersome system. One of the senior public health officials from Munich said the way that they get alerted to a case is the doctor sends them the test results by fax. You have to send it by fax because of data protection. How old-fashioned. And the doctor can't name the patient, again, because of data protection. What you get is just this fax with the doctor's contact details on it saying that the doctor has a patient who has got the coronavirus. And um, then you have this sort of team of officials who have to try and work out who the hell this person is and then who they've been in contact with over the last two weeks. So it involves an enormous amount of phone bashing. And it just seems like a really Byzantine and, as you say, old-fashioned way of going about doing it. One thing that is about to change in Germany, and we'll certainly see in most European countries, including the UK, will be Bluetooth-based apps that will, every time you come into the proximity of another person with the app, Bluetooth fields will interact. And that should make all of this sort of fax-based phone bashing an awful lot easier in the future. 
how do German people feel about their privacy and you know, data protection, but also the idea that somebody somewhere will be tracking everyone you meet and everyone you come anywhere near? Historically, because of the legacy of the Gestapo and also in East Germany of the Stasi, Stasi uh, yeah. Germany has been probably the most aggressively defensive nation of its privacy in the world. But there has been a very strong sense in which people feel that the threat to life has kind of overrided these considerations and they become a bit academic. Really, the initiative has kind of swung towards the authorities for a time but there's been lots of wrangling over what exactly is this new app going to look like? Where's the data going to be kept? Who can see it? And is it going to collect data on the locations of people's individual phones? So I think we're starting to see those privacy concerns creeping back in. And I expect that won't just be a German phenomenon. It's been two weeks now that the lockdown has lifted. In the first week or so, it did look like the R number, which is the rate of infectivity effectively, seemed to be creeping back up again. Is that something that's a problem in Germany? When Angela Merkel announced that some of the lockdown measures would be eased, she gave a sort of impromptu piece of science lecturing to the German public. When we are 1,2, also jeder steckt 20 percent mehr. And she said the R number is so important because if it goes above one, then it grows so quickly that if it reaches 1.3, the entire German hospital system will be overwhelmed by June. And so it's very much been at the centre of certainly the federal government's strategy. And a week after the first easing of the measures took place, the R number did look as though it had risen to one, so right on the cusp of exponential growth, which did ring the alarm bells in some quarters. But since those initial alarm bells, the R number in Germany has dropped back down to 0.7. So for now, faith in the German Chancellor appears secure. It probably helps that she has a background in quantum chemistry, and seems at home discussing the science behind the policies. I think it is part of Angela Merkel's enormous credibility as a crisis chancellor. There's always been a sense when people talk about her in the sort of analytical sense that she is at her best when confronted with really difficult period. Her approval ratings are sky high. She's on something like um, 80% of the public approve of what she's doing. Wow. Certainly by British standards, it's, it's pretty novel. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something-year-old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And where you are in Berlin, what is the new normal for you? I mean, how many people are you allowed to meet in public? Are restaurants reopening? Are bars open? What's it like? The new normal is probably a little bit more stringent for us than it was during the lockdown because now the state has introduced a compulsory duty to wear masks. It seems like a a sort of mask-wearing duty is also probably going to come to the UK in some form and there'll be a a sort of rash of mask chic as people sort of try to work out how to express themselves through their masks. You see lots of people in Germany sort of sewing their own or trying to buy particularly swanky models. It's a sort of weird, whole weird subcultural phenomenon. I've seen masks that people have made with the colours of their football clubs. You've seen sort of camouflage ones. There's one woman on the on the train wearing half a nappy that she'd um, sort of strung over her face. Really all sorts. That's inventive. You could say that, yeah. What was it like for you the first time you went out and you were wearing a mask and everybody else was too? It's deeply uncomfortable. For a start, it does look alien. It's a really visible reminder of the fact that we're constantly surrounded by this invisible danger. It really does make a huge difference to the the basic experience of of leaving your house. Is your life a bit freer than it was two weeks ago? We've just started getting these dribbles of normality. The um, hairdressers opened. And how long are the queues at the hairdressers? (laughs) Mm, Of course, some of them are booked out for, for months. Big news for us as a a family with small children, the museums have started to open. So we found ourselves as the only people in the um, Museum of Illusion, which is very weird, standing in the middle of all these optical tricks with nobody else there waiting for the zombies to come around the corner and get you. (laughs) The kids must love it. Um, They're very enthusiastic, but it's it's so strange still being out in the middle of Berlin with, with virtually nobody around on the streets. It's really interesting that you say the centre of Berlin is still empty. So even though lockdown has eased, are people buying it? Are people sort of understanding they can go about in a freer way? Or or is that going to take some time? I think generally people are still worried about getting infected. Although I would also say that lockdown fatigue has been creeping in, in in these surveys of people's compliance with social distancing. You can really see the effect. People are starting to socialise a bit more, but the uh, the atmosphere, particularly in the centre, less so in the periphery of Berlin, is, is still extremely disconcertingly quiet. So it's nothing like normal. It doesn't feel like it. Looking more widely at the rest of Europe, some countries are further ahead in the process of opening up again. Tell me a bit about countries like Austria and the Czech Republic. It's helpful to look at Austria and the Czech Republic together because what they have in common is, is first of all, that they imposed enormously stringent lockdowns very early on in the second week of March. So within days of detecting their first cases, Sebastian Kurz, the Austrian chancellor, was telling the people, don't go out unless you have 
an extremely good reason. They've had a great deal of success in, in, in limiting the spread of COVID-19. So Austria's only had 15,000 cases and 600 deaths in a population of 10 million. Czech Republic's similarly sized population, only 8,000 confirmed cases and 250 deaths. Wow. And that has given them the, the confidence and the sense of security to start easing very aggressively. We have started to reopen small uh, shops and also to provide people with the opportunity to get out and have their physical activity. So in Austria, for example, there is a plan for restaurants to come back by the end of the month. They're going to reopen things like swimming pools and museums. So Austria, by the start of June, in, in only a few weeks' time, could be in a pretty enviable position. People were also encouraged to wear masks when they enter a shop so that the spread of uh, asymptomatic carriers... And, and the Czech Republic is, is very similar. Um, their government is talking about letting 250,000 children go to summer camps. In July, they're talking about allowing gatherings of up to 100 people at a time in the very near future. Is it basically back to business as, as usual in, in those countries? Life is still noticeably different. People still have to wear masks when they go out. There are limits on how many people can meet at once. It's uh, up to 10 in Austria and the Czech Republic is, is considering up to 100. But things like festivals and concerts and even cinemas are going to be impossible for the foreseeable future. And um, the one really big area of debate at the moment across Europe is when we can go back to allowing people to go on holiday to other countries. And, and that's something that um, where these countries are, are very much dependent on what their neighbours say and what goes on in Brussels. When does Europe reopen? Are holidays likely this year? This is a, um, a debate that's going on across the European Union at the moment. And you have some countries that are almost unbelievably dependent on tourism. Italy, for example, tourism is about um, 15% of GDP. In Austria, something like six percentage points of their GDP come just from German tourists visiting the country. So you have this whole faction of European countries that are kind of desperately wanting some glimmer of hope about when they can open up. And um, some of them have been inviting big travel companies in to try and draw up responsible game plans for how they can bring the tourists back. But the trouble is that because this has to be agreed on an international level, it's going to move at the pace of the slowest. So I, th I think it will probably err on the side of caution. Certainly the travel companies are expecting that the holiday season will happen, but that it'll be later than usual. It could start, for example, in August and roll on as late as December, when people might be going to have beach holidays in sort of Turkey or, or Bulgaria. Another interesting thing will be whether because some of the countries where we normally have our holidays have been so badly affected, such as mainland Spain and Italy, whether we'll start to see a shift in where people go on holiday to less explored places like Bulgaria or Romania or Cyprus. Will they all open up at the same time, roughly, because it'll be an EU-wide decision, do you think? I think it's very likely to be something that's agreed in Brussels. And so I don't think we're going to see anybody going it alone. The big precedent here is Austria tried to strike a bilateral deal with Germany a couple of weeks ago, where they said, come on, guys, we've done a really good job of curbing this pandemic and you've done a pretty good job. So what do you say we, we kind of open our borders just to Germans and Austrians and they can go backwards and forwards? And um, Germany told them absolutely not, particularly because it was an Austrian ski resort at, at Ischgl that's believed to have been the sort of ground zero for the 
coronavirus outbreak in, in Germany in the first place. So there's a lot of mistrust between European states. Is that likely to change European relations in the future? One thing that will be very interesting to watch is how the European Union manages to reassert its authority because this has been the crisis of nation states. And the initiative has been seized by Paris and by Berlin and by Rome rather than in Brussels. And it's very much been sort of every country for themselves. We've seen border closures, some countries briefly banning the export of medical equipment. We've seen the stockpiling of ventilators. And I I just can't see how you can have that sort of behaviour and then have everybody kind of go back to normal diplomatic relations. I think it will probably have a scarring effect on how certain countries regard each other. Do you think the British government are studying how it's been done over there? I um, don't have any direct knowledge of what's going on in Westminster beyond what I read in, in the British press. But I would say they'd be mad not to be. And they would also be mad to be looking at one country and going, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. I think they, they really need to be surveying the whole spectrum of measures across Europe, even in smaller countries such as the Czech Republic, where you might not think it would be that, that relevant If I were sitting there in the Department of Health or in number 10, I would want to um, have as broad a sense as possible of what the different limbs of the decision tree look like in other countries and then to kind of combine the best of all of them and adapt it to Britain's circumstances. Has the pandemic changed your view of how Europe really works or how it comes together? The thing that has most surprised me has been how fundamentally different European countries are from each other under a crisis, how it has really brought out, you can call it national character, you can call it political instincts, but you can look at the whole gamut within such a small continent from Sweden, which has decided that the public health authorities will trust the public and the public will trust the public health authorities to try and restrain the infections without any kind of forced lockdown, all the way through to places like Poland and Hungary, which had locked down almost before they had any coronavirus cases at all. You're really seeing this amazing diversity of different instincts coming to the fore. I think in Britain, maybe there's a tendency to slightly think of Europe as being not necessarily a homogenous block, but certainly a group of countries that have converged under the umbrella of the European Union and become, to a certain extent, like one another. And we're starting to see, as a result of this pandemic, how that's really not true at all, how these national differences are are really enormous. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Berlin correspondent for The Times, Oliver Moody. You can read more of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Ben Mitchell, Edward Drummond and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. 
Also, in these uncertain times, you can access expert analysis on the latest developments in the coronavirus crisis with The Times' dedicated daily newsletter. Sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk slash coronavirus. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.